a taste of Melbourne's diverse poetry scene. Poets using their voices to entertain, to move, to take you on a journey. Connecting you to grassroots poetry and performance. Good morning. Welcome to Spoken Word on 3CR. My name is Tina Janukas. 3CR broadcasts from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I acknowledge elders past, present and emerging. Today on the program I am speaking with Linda Adair. Linda is a poet, writer, artist, editor, publisher of Rochford Press and co-editor with her partner, poet Mark Roberts, of the online journal of poetry and reviews, Rochford Street Review. Linda has published one collection of poetry, The Unintended Consequences of the Shattering, a chapbook with Melbourne Poets Union, which I published when I was editor-in-chief at Melbourne Poets Union. Linda lives in Darug and Gundungurra lands in the Blue Mountains, and she was recently in Melbourne to give a reading at La Mama Poetica, and I thought I would take the opportunity to catch up with her in the studio. Linda, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tina. It's a pleasure to be here and lovely to have been in Melbourne to read at La Mama Poetica. A great honour. Linda, you've been involved in the world of poetry for a very long time, especially through Rochford Press and the online Rochford Street Review. As editor, what are the changes you have observed in the evolution of poetry in the past couple of decades? I think that there's more of a sense of the diversity of voices coming forward and the positionality. I think that um, the independent poetry scene in the 80s and 90s was moving towards a kind of position where forms were explored, but I don't know if the pressure of the the telling of stories was as as much as I think it is these days. And... uh, a lot more women seem to be writing. We have disability voices. They're the sorts of things that I would say we're looking at. Your own poetry is multifaceted with poems about ancestral familial history. At the core, what motivates you as a poet? My concerns the current time would probably be moving towards a fairer Australia and the recognition of our First Nations people is very, very close to my heart. The more research I do into family history, the more I realise the stories that have been lost or were never articulated because of the lack of power that people possessed to tell their stories. They weren't given an education. They didn't have the opportunity to make a pathway into telling their stories. And so as I have gone back and looked at different generations. I've discovered that there's a lot of stories that are interesting to be told. Our family goes back to very early on in the the colonisation of Australia. They didn't want to necessarily be here, but they were brought here nonetheless. And um, they've played a complex role in what's happened in the last 235 years. They're not rare stories, but I think they're stories that a lot of people aren't considering when they are thinking about where we are now. This is all part of the truth-telling, that we all need to try and understand where our stories are woven into the story that has become modern-day Australia and the repairs that need to occur. How does that uh, get expressed in your own poetry? Um, Well, I try and bring facts and then imagine the realities. So some people do family history and say, oh, you know, great-grandma lived here and she died here and that's the end of it. But I want to find out more about 
who those people were and um, what their stories were like. So I might start with reading you a poem that probably I wasn't going to read, but I am going to read. Crossing the Lexicon. I trace the family tree until the documents falter, listen for wails from stifled mouths, their voices drowned out. By the slap of waves on dank hulls, clumsily inked crosses on convict ship manifests beside Irish names exiled by oceans to Port Jackson. After 1,000 years of English occupation, purged for dissent or merely existing, transported to this open-air prison without even their own ghosts for company. In the undeclared frontier wars, emancipist conscripts were authorised, in the name of the king, to fire muskets on First Nations men, women and children, even preemptively to protect their holdings. After the bloodletting, the lexicon became another Rubicon, meaning and history rendered by those with the power to speak, record or erase. Proclamations of the Crown ruled life and sentenced death, forbade the mother tongues of both the coloniser and the colonised. For so many gone before, a cascade of shame and trauma in margins they could not annotate, merely survive the order words of empire. Ironic that the King's English is the one tongue I have to recall those shipped here to displace the sovereign peoples whose ancient languages are again being spoken. The first in my family to attend university, unwittingly I colonised myself, taking honours in English literature, an older and wiser friend's query at the time, political economy would have been better. It's got... Um a remarkable self-critique going on in that poem. I think that's what's required. I think that's what's required as a long-time ally of First Nations people, that you have to be willing to do that, to actually have some authenticity in the debates that we're about to embark upon, which I am hopeful will lead to a good outcome in the yes voice, but I am not complacent about it by any means. When you say you're not complacent about it, what do you mean by that? I mean that I think there are many people who are running disinformation and scare campaigns against it. And if we don't get this done now, I don't think that that's a very good look for ourselves, our country or our moral compass. As a poet, what do you think uh, uh, you can do about it? Well... It's perhaps limited. Um, there are different groups such as Poets for a Voice or some other group like that that I've joined. But I think in conversation and I also think in art that if people are taken into a story and feel the humanity of a story, then they may be able to grapple with things that if it's completely informational-based facts without any emotion in it, that they may not come to that understanding. There are other actions one can do in a more practical level in life, you know, but, um, you know, supporting the um, different organisations that are trying to get to a yes vote. But I think because words are my sort of area, I've tended to bring my words as a poet into forums that other people who are not poetry-loving audiences will grasp and get some of the message. 
for example, right now I've got three paintings in a group show at Articulate Project Space in Leichhardt in Sydney, which is part of the Modern Art Project's Blue Mountains show. But everybody else has just got artworks, but I've also got three short poems. They bring out some of the ideas embedded in the canvases, and I was pleased to see at the opening that they seem to be getting through attention to people who perhaps are more comfortable with visual rather than text language. It would be lovely to hear another poem from you, Linda. Thank you, Tina. I'll read you Steeped in History. The afternoon slumps, habit calls for a cuppa, the mind craves something staunch to reboot as the coffee-fueled resolve dissipates. A bold breakfast brew would do the trick. As the jug boils, I consider my comfortable options versus those offered by history. The green tin or the red, the Irish and English blend respectively. The choice would have been clear once. Dusty leavings swept off a factory floor became the green after first pickings were boxed in red. And chopped leaf takings of the cheaper Assam fortified the displaced natives of Erin. Whilst the best Indian leaves that money could buy steeped in the tea-time parlours of an empire built by war, plunder and brutality. Why else would the troopers wear red coats but to hide the bloodletting of battle? Gold lettering status by appointment to Her Majesty on the tin, that emblematic red coat my great-great-grandfather once wore. At Lambing Flat, the Crown's men read the Riot Act to stop the slaughter of Chinese miners. But that was on a good day. Usually the traps defended squatters' rights as they took over Wiradjuri lands. I'm wondering how much of your own Irish background comes into the poetry? A lot. We did our first trip to Ireland in 2016 and I wanted to go to the Strokestown National Famine Museum to understand what actually happened. I think my entire worldview changed at that point and I realised that as Thomas Keneally writes in Three Famines and as John Kelly wrote in um, The Graves Are Walking, uh, a shortage of food should not mean a famine or a genocide but in fact it did in Ireland. It was politically orchestrated, morally deemed appropriate that lazy, supposedly lazy Irish people would be moved off land so that more efficient agricultural methods could be used. For example, after the famine, the population went from 8 million to about 4 million and two of my great-great-grandmothers were brought out here as famine orphans rescued from the workhouses and girls of good character brought to be wives, mothers, servants or possibly whores because there were so many men here in the colony and there were not enough women to settle the rowdy men and create a viable population to ensure that the colony, which was they discovered the value of the land, they cleared it, they had sheep, they had gold coming. They wanted to make sure that they could keep hold of um, the Australian continent. This is the English crown. British men were in the ascendancy. One grandmother, great-grandmother married a, a redcoat. How does that Irish history inform your consciousness in relation to Aboriginal history and 
European colonisation of Australia. They're both part of the colonial project. The English had occupied Ireland for a thousand years. They politely orchestrated the uh, moving off of the land of a lot of Irish people who came to settle here. The settlement of Australia was a political act and an opportunistic act, and part of that process of so-called settlement was obviously dispossessing First Nations people and basically rewarding people who were emancipist farmers to become part of the front line. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Welcome back. I'm Tina Janukas and you're listening to Spoken Word on 3CR. Today I'm speaking with Linda Adair, poet, writer, artist, editor, publisher of Rochford Press and co-editor of Rochford Street Review. Linda, you're also a visual artist and last year, I think in 2022, you spent time at the Bilpin International Ground for Creative Initiatives where you painted 12 canvases which informed a series of poems called Jesse of Nunes. I find this interaction between poetry and art very interesting. How do you see this interaction? And in that sense, what comes first, the poetry or the art or is there a synergy? I think there's a synergy for me. When I went to Big CI, I was largely invited to go as a poet. And at the end of the residency, one does a presentation of what one's been doing. I was the only writer there and I was surrounded by visual artists and a ceramicist. I was wanting to do something visual to help me move into the space of writing the poetry and I was also doing a lot of research because the people who ran Big CI, one of them was very knowledgeable about the town of Nunes, which is where Jessie was born, which I'd discovered after she'd passed away. She was a favourite aunt because I had obtained her birth certificate. I knew where she was born. I knew some of her story, but she'd never spoken about it. I also had realised that she had never acknowledged her Indigenous heritage because she was born in 1920 and obviously in the peak time of the stolen generations, it was not safe to be a child who was of Aboriginal descent. It was likely that you would be taken away from your family and institutionalised. That was part of it. So I started painting and drawing, you know, one of the people at the... um, the artists there came up with, you know, a beautiful calligraphy brush and some Chinese ink and said, Linda, use this. I just started playing around with that. And from there, I started envisaging the point of view of what Jesse at eight would have seen. I treated it in that way. And then I allowed that as a way to illustrate with the talk that I was going to do at the end, as well as a poetry reading, I had work to take them through the ideas. They're not people who just come in and want to hang off words so my idea is to take poetry out of the tent because it's not very well known in a lot of Australia. So would you see the poems as being independent to the artwork you produced or? In certain contexts yes yes like I mean in as much as you could go to a poetry reading and read a poem yes if you were just going to an event where people who go to hear poetry were or put it in a, a magazine about poetry where people who read poetry, but this was an attempt to take it beyond that little 
fairly small audience. Let's hear one of those poems. Okay. Wander on paper grounds, glyph upon the page, sutured to my heart, time ruptures, here on the edge of the Wallamai wilderness, as if I saw you for the first time. And then as endless rains wash out dirt roads, I armchair travel, armed with bare facts through books and histories. Then I recognise you aged eight, a formal photograph to capture the big day when a permanent schoolhouse was completed. By now, 25 children remain in Nunes, 275 children less than when it was in a tent or shanty. Hundreds of workers and their families have fled. This shaded and scarred also ran town. After the grand failure of the Commonwealth Oil Corporation and the general strike of 1917, Arranged in front of the new timber building, seated at the centre of the group, you gaze out. Motherless, someone cares for you. Below immaculate hair, your eyes watch bemused. The corner of your lip tilts down, ever so slightly, as if by an act of will you almost smile. This moment is golden. You were not sent to a home for babies after your mother and newborn sister died. This is where you were before you lived in Redfern. You never spoke about that young woman's life, nor acknowledged ancestry to the oldest living culture on earth, because the only safe choice for you was assimilation. If love was blood, you could have been my mother, and I the little girl you never had. But by then you had become Jessica, glamorous and generous to a fault. As a publisher at uh, Rochford Press and as co-editor of Rochford Street Review, what are the challenges facing uh, publishers these days? Resources, distribution networks and people's attention. There's a lot of competition. There's still a very lively poetry scene for people who are interested in it, but book buying in this country is a challenge. Book production is a challenge for all levels of publishing in this country. And definitely with smaller smaller independent presses, it is a, um, an issue of getting the books out to people through distribution networks and, and the price point and, and the cost. And a lot of people do, you know, print on demand. And we've always done small chat books, usually. We have our own Rochford Cottage bookshop, which people can look at and order books online from there. We carry other small presses as well as our own. But there's not enough places for publication of poetry because a lot of people don't really know it's a thing in the wider audience. So there are the challenges. There's no shortage of people wanting to send us manuscripts. Can you read us another poem and uh, tell us uh, something about the poem? I'm going to read you a poem called Whitewashing. And this is a newer poem. This poem's about uh, my experience of growing up living on Darug land in a town called Blacktown and the history they taught us at school, which left out so many truths about this country. Over the last couple of years, I've been working in a, uh, an Indigenous-owned art gallery in the mountains and bookshop, and I've been aware that a lot of people have a similar experience of, oh, we didn't know this history. I knew a little bit more or sensed a little bit more as a child because I had an Aboriginal man as my uncle. He was a Bunjalung man and he lived on Darug land. But we never knew all that because at the time there were silences demanded by assimilation policies. This was at the time when um, 
before or just around the time of the referendum in 1967. As an adult, I've learned about the history of the first land grant which gave the town its name, and it's mind-boggling to me because that was a land grant given by Governor Macquarie, who was infamous for the Appen massacres in 1816, but at the same time he was granting Colby and Naranjinji a grant of land in 1816, which was registered in 1819. He was granting land that had been excised by the Crown to the people who traditionally owned the land anyway. So these are the sorts of things that keep me awake at night. The assumptions that we kind of haven't really questioned generally in our acceptance of Crown land. Whitewashing. In a town called Black, opposite 1871 schoolrooms, stood a red brick 1960s library full of reference books celebrating Captain's Cook's East Coast voyage to claim possession on one tiny island for an entire empty continent, whitewashed settlement. In a town called Black, inside that red brick children's library, the empty schoolhouse sat on a new fiction shelf five years after publication. One librarian's quiet resistance, a gift for children like me, desperate for truth-telling amid whitewashed history. In a town called Black, from that red brick suburban library, I borrowed that book, took it home to read, then wept, at the fight for education and equality that a different colour skin needed. My mother tried to soothe me. Racism is much worse in America. Whitewashed assimilation. In a town called Black, thanks to that red brick local library, I began to notice the gaping holes in stories served up as objective fact to colourblind innocence of nine. Children taught to accept what the history texts told whitewashed lies. Linda, you've been involved in poetry in various ways for a very long time. You came to it late though with uh, your first collection and also to your art which you have taken up again. Why was that? The practicalities of raising two children and working full-time and putting food on the table and being a parent with another person of two amazing children that I love entirely and I'm very proud of and it's been so worth it but uh, there wasn't time and money to be able to sit back you know a room of one's own Virginia Woolf said it all you need a room of one's own you need space and you need money it's that simple and I didn't have all of those things I either had money or I had time I didn't have a work room of my own I had a family home I had kids to pick up after I always knew that once I decided to have a family, I would put them first and foremost front and centre. Mark bravely tried to keep the review going and did to some extent, but we did have a hiatus even with that. Bringing people into the world and bootstrapping them and creating them so that they can be the amazing freestanding individuals that they've become takes a lot of time and effort. The obstacle race by Germaine Greer all those years ago said very clearly, you know, why women's art was of a smaller scale and less continuous in its productivity because of the roles that they take on in the caring economy, which is totally unpaid, you know. And I was working full time, all the time. And it was as the children had left and as life had got to a stage where I moved to the Blue Mountains and I realised that... I needed to again return to all the writing and the 
art making that I had loved when I was younger before life got in the way. So this must be quite an incredibly creative time for you. It is. In the last month, you know, I've done things that I've sort of wondered if I'd ever get round to doing. You know, in the last year I've had a couple of residencies and, and had artwork and a, two exhibitions plus the Big CI Open Day. I've had a residency at Varuna recently. So it's been things that I didn't know if I'd ever get round to doing. It's been wonderful to have those opportunities, but after you defer your creativity for a long time and then coming down to Melbourne to La Mama, although I'd read a few you know, a few features last year, different readings, but the La Mama one seemed a bit special because, you know, I was in some amazing company alongside people like Tony Birch and Denise Chapman and um, Sam Morley. It was quite an honour to come down to Melbourne to read there and uh, I thought, well, this has been good. The last four years have been good. Linda, let's go out on a final poem, shall we? Yes, Tina, I'd love that. I'm going to read one of the longer poems in the book, the Unintended Consequences of the Shattering. And the poem is called The Light Far From the Hill. It's dedicated to our daughter Lucy who lives in Perth, but it's also about our family's diasporic connections to Ireland. The Light Far From the Hill. From my crow's nest home on this sudden ridge, carmine clouds dissolve into noisy gloaming. As cockatoos screech beyond blue-shadowed valleys, orange lasers the desiccated plains that lead west toward you, my lucent child. At our first embrace, chest to breast, seconds old, still connected, you embrace me with such intensity. Most newborns don't hug like that, the midwife said, handing your father a blade to cut the cord. I named you bringer of light. By ten months, you stopped crawling, stood up. Without taking one tentative baby step, you ran after other children at a party. Since that day, you've travelled at breakneck speed toward your horizon, daring us to keep up. Up here, darkness and fog swaddle the dividing range. Night will take two hours more to blanket the bare plains, silvered scrub and salt lakes, an all but deserted majesty extending between us, so many milestones and time zones apart. Over there, limestone sand blows sharp against your skin. Delivered by the Antarctic wind, they call the Fremantle Doctor. A baking city you declare is home for now. Your cornflower blue eyes watch another ocean sunset. I know you crave a life beyond these shores. I recall telling you about my first journey to Ireland and how the gulls of the Liffey cried out in greeting an inchoate song of loss sounding in my heart. Bloomsday, poetry, pints of on-tapped Guinness, balms all for diasporic pilgrims, yet to learn a brutal history told at the Famine Museum at Strokestown. I drink tea and contemplate the quantum of maternal tears shed for all those young and vibrant souls leaving on the heartbreak swell of the Irish Sea, newlyweds from the West Country who'd sailed to Liverpool seeking work, only to find their one chance lay in an assisted passage to the colony of New South Wales. Returning as a family to Ireland for winter solstice, we roamed along the wild Atlantic coast. Atop Salt Hill met a lazy pink dawn that gilt the wingspans of great black-backed gulls who harried updraft currents, then swooped down into a postcard Galway Bay. 
Above the cliffs of moor, our laughter clattered like ice through a bitter whiteout that stalked our progress over pointless famine roads as night outran a muffled day. Single candles shone welcome in distant windows, and you smiled in relief to see their glow. Cosseted later in Dublin's grandest hotel, I wrapped presents as you learned the code of those candles, a resistance burning on the darkest and holiest of nights, by a people starved for the sacraments of faith, hope and freedom. Your framed photo of our Irish odyssey sits on my desk. We are together at last, you, your brother, your dad, me, smiling, frozen in the winter sun of St Stephen's Green, sight of fierce gun battles waged for independence. There you uttered, it feels like we've come home. Though this mountain house is so far from Ireland and not your childhood home, a solo candle will stand in this window, waiting always for you. Thank you, Linda. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Tina. Thank you for having me. I'm Tina Chanukas, and I've been talking with poet, writer, editor, publisher and artist Linda Adair on 3CR's Spoken Word program. 3CR broadcasts every Thursday morning on 855am or live stream on 3cr.org.au. You can also download the podcast. Linda Adair's poetry collection, The Unintended Consequences of the Shattering, is available online from Rochford Cottage Bookshop. Thank you for listening.